I just think busy week after everything that's going on, they've put it in the calendar that this is how they want to finish it um, by a service of thanksgiving and praise. And um, so I just think that's, uh, it's, for me, that's worth celebrating as somebody part of this community. And so uh, I know it's awkward timings, three o'clock in the afternoon, but just uh, um, if you can, please, please join us. Um, I do want to put it in your cat in your diaries as well. It would have been awkward for uh, to make Amy make this announcement, but um, this might come as a surprise to some, or it might be uh, some people probably thought Amy was already in a position of official position of leadership. In the two weeks, we're going to officially bring Amy onto leadership, and we're going to celebrate that. Um, and so there's going to be more information around that because celebration needs a good feed, and uh, and so we want to make sure that. Uh, that we do that really well in a couple of weeks' time. So please make sure that that Sunday is marked in your calendar and make sure that uh, you're free to stay on for um, some good food and good dessert afterwards. We want to do it well. Um, so it'll be an important date in the diary of uh, of the church. Um, I want to pray really quickly. I want to pray for us as we... We're going to pray for Jani. If you're around Jani, Jani's... Uh, Johnny's last Sunday with us. If you're around her, pray for her. Um, I love, I'm so grateful that Johnny's here, and I love us just to, to keep praying for Johnny. I love that David's here, so and we can pray for you too, David. Um, but thank, it's great that you're here. Um, so if you're around those guys, um, anybody else that just wants prayer, nudge the person beside you, um, ask them to lay a hand, something like that. Um, yeah. So Father, we uh, we thank you for. Um, what we've sang, well, we thank you for the chance just uh, uh, for a couple of hours just to turn our attention towards you. And um, and so we've, we've done it in worship. And we do it again now, God, as we ask your blessing and your hand to be upon Jenny as she um, as she spends the last few days here with us. And God, in the next steps that you have for her, God, we just pray your blessing upon her. So God, we pray that uh, that you would, as we turn our attention towards you, that you would bless her, God. And we ask for your hand to be upon Johnny. God, we thank you for him. Um, thank you for uh, thank you for the calling and um, the gifting and all that is on, on Johnny's life. And God, in, in, in days of God, God just being um, God being laid aside and uh, we just pray that you would that you'll be so present. God, we long for healing. God, we're desiring for healing and we're praying even right now, God, that you just bring healing and strength to his knee, to his whole body. God, we're, we're even asking God that in the times that he's um, at home, the times that he's lying in his room and maybe frustrated, God, I just pray that you have a profound sense of the presence and the peace of Jesus um, and that you would bless him and you would encourage him. And for everybody in the room, God, I do pray for David and I pray for David and his family, his beautiful family, his beautiful kids, and I pray that you would bless him. Thank you that he's with us this morning. And God, others that are that are in the room, the part of this family, God, others that are carrying heartache this morning, others that are carrying pain, I pray that you'd be so close to them. Father, I pray for the Gindis in Egypt. God, I pray that you would bless them. And God, I pray even, would you specifically, God, protect them um, in, in, in Egypt this week? God, I pray that you would bless their time with family that it would be fun and it would be enjoyable. It would fill the, it would fill their tanks, God, but it would, but you would protect them, we pray. Um, and God, as we open up your word, we just long that you would continue to speak, that you long to make yourself known as we open up uh, the scriptures this morning. Um, give us 
eyes to see, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, so what, what I want to do, I suppose a wee bit similar to last week, um, I, I want to set ourselves in a story and uh, and then look at a few other places in the scriptures to, to help um, to help gather a few thoughts this morning. We're still talking about the gospel. We're still talking about the good news. I guess last week we talked a wee bit about, um, actually, some people in the room don't want to disappoint. Walking to school, walking to school with Katie during the week, and uh, whenever we're walking out, this from the tree, these this flock of birds, black birds, were all went flying across the sky. They were all, and Katie caught there. Katie was like, Dolly, look at all those birds. It was like, I don't know how many hundreds it was, but they're all so close together. He said, Dolly, those birds are sticking together. And I looked a bit closer and I realized they were Velcros. Run! You're the one I can rely on. Well, that was out loud, oh dear. That wasn't even, you didn't even internalize that. Um, John chapter 4 promises, it's only going to get better. That's the good thing. It's a good thing. So John chapter 4, um, the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, last week, we talked about how this was the good news. As it was shocking for some, and maybe it's still shocking for some today, that how this was good news, not only for those who were oppressed, but for the oppressors. And, uh, and that, can be, that can be difficult because we are addicted to judgment. We are in some ways addicted to vengeance and punishment. And it seemed to be that uh, we joked with somebody during the week that God, that, that Jesus closed the book on vengeance. That Jesus didn't have a book, so he had to roll up the scroll. That doesn't feel like it has the same. Doesn't feel like it has the same effect. Uh, making this profound statement and then rolling the scroll up for five minutes. But um, but that's what Jesus did. Everybody expected that when when Messiah came, he was going to deal with the enemies. He was going to punish. He was going to destroy. And Jesus came and showed a completely completely different different way his way was completely different um and so we've seen how it was whenever whenever the crowd whenever the people in the synagogue recognized that what jesus was saying that this was good news for their enemies they were furious and they tried to throw them off a cliff um and still today and i, I suppose i I'm, i've been provoked by this and i've Try to provoke you a wee bit with this idea of like when you take away people's religion of revenge, how angry does it still make them? If you pull away the that idea of punishment and revenge, it can still get a reaction from some uh, religious places. John chapter four, I think I have been caught by this the last couple of days, and even last night. So you have to bear with me because even last night I was, uh, I, I felt like I just caught something about what was taking place at the well that doesn't feel fully formed. And uh, and, I, and I'm really comfortable with that because I always know when I present something that is unformed that people in this room will help me form it. Or actually, that's not even a, that's not even worth forming, dismantle that immediately. I'm up for that too. Um, but anyway, John chapter four, Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman. And it's a, it's a, it's a, lengthy, it's a lengthy portion. Um, I'm not going to read all 42 verses um but jesus and his disciples were they were making their way through 
um, Judea and Galilee. And uh, Jesus, we're told in verse 4 of John 4 that he had to go through Samaria. And uh, he came to a plot of ground where Jacob's well was. And Jesus was tired from his journey. And he sat down by the well. And, uh, and then a Samaritan woman came to draw water. She had came at a time when everybody else had already drawn their water. She came on her own. She came alone and discovered, suppose in, in a way, her, it was her enemy. Like the, the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other. And so she arrives at the well and there is this, there is Jesus um, at the well and he's tired and he's thirsty and he asks the woman for a drink. And she can't believe it. And she says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Why, why are you even asking that? And, uh, and then Jesus enters into this conversation with her. And, um, and again, he, he, he asks questions. He, he provokes in a way that causes her to open up and tell her story. And she tells Jesus that she doesn't have a husband after he tells her to go and get him. And Jesus said, you're right. When you say you have no husbands, the fact is you've had five. And the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. And she then tries to turn, change the conversation. She says, sure, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So then enter into this theological conversation. Um, and, then, and then something beautiful happens. This is a moment of transformation. This encounter with, that this woman had with Jesus completely changes her life. And in fact, it changes the life of the community that she came from. The community that initially she was, she found herself living in shame and rejection and isolation. She then returns because of this encounter that she has with Jesus. And many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. Um, and the, 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 what, the, what the people in the community said, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. I'm pulling out parts of the story there that I think are important for us, that are that are relevant for us. I think if you want to re-familiarise yourself with the story or engage for the first time, maybe I'd encourage you to go and read John chapter 4 today. I suppose what I would love to do today is recognise that the gospel, that this very good news is good news for those that have been used, for those that have been disappointed, for those that are feeling shame, for those that are feeling unworthy of love. Maybe that's not you this morning, but maybe at times it has been you, or maybe there's people in your world that you know, I think it is important for us to recognize that the good news is good for those that have been left disappointed, shame, unworthy of love. And I... I don't know how you've heard this story before. I don't know what your engagement with with this uh, with this story has been. I know for me there has been often, probably the majority of the time I've heard it being spoken about. That we, I, I recognise, I suppose this week that I've carried really probably unfair judgments about this woman into my reading of it. As I've engaged with this story before, I've 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 decided already. I've made up my mind about this woman who, well, if she's had if she's had five husbands and the one that she's with now is not even her husband, I've, I've arrived with all of these preconceived ideas about the sort of woman that she is. 
I just suppose are like a step back a wee bit from that this week and realize that's probably really unfair. Because it, 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 in these days, in Jesus' time, uh, husbands, men were able just to get rid of their wives on a whim. They got bored. They, they, they no longer find them of any worth or of any value and were able to dismiss them. So suppose that 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 literally like felt like a change that changed everything about how he then was engaging with this story. Because all of a sudden we're not reading reading unfair judgments and almost well if she's if she's been rejected maybe she deserves it or if she's having to come isolated or in shame but maybe she deserves it. I'm just like I'm being honest like that's probably part of like part of my prejudice of how I've engaged with this story before. But I began to try and imagine the rejection that this woman faced. To have, to have got married, to have maybe felt fallen in love and the, the husband, after a certain number of months, certain period of time, he got bored and he wanted someone else. And on a whim, kicked her out. Imagine that five, five times. The feeling of unworthiness feeling of rejection and isolation that this woman must have must have felt as she dragged herself to the well one more time on her own having experienced nothing but rejection experienced nothing but shame feeling nothing but that unworthiness of love and she has this profound encounter with the with the Jew at a well she has this profound encounter with Jesus the Messiah at a well that changes everything. And so this is this is sort of my unformed thoughts at the minute. Because a well, if we were to go back, we didn't have time to go back to all of those places where a well is mentioned throughout the scriptures. But I think the, the few places that I can think off the top of my head suggest to me that it's a place of legacy, suggest to me that it is a place where people are called and set apart for the purposes of God. But it felt like it felt like more than that as I thought about how Abraham's servants were sent to were sent to because Abraham was getting on in, in years, Genesis 24, I think it is. Abraham was getting on in years. He was concerned he wanted to find someone for his boy Isaac. And so he sent he sent his servants. And so they, the servants end up at a well. And we're even told, I don't know if there's anything to this, but we're even told that same similar language is used. The servants arrive at this well, and a, and, a, and a lady comes, Rebecca comes to the well, and the servants say, give me something to drink. And so it's here that the scene is set for, for, for marriage. And if we were to go and look in Genesis 29 and see Jacob and Rachel, if we were to go to Exodus 2 and see the story of Moses and Zipporah, here's two or three times where... where um, where a marriage is set, is the scene is set for a marriage. So I'm just wondering, is that significant? Because I flick back to John chapter three, and uh, and I wonder, is John? These are John the Baptist's words in John chapter three, but John, the writer of this gospel, I wonder, is he trying to get us to think that this is what's maybe going on here? Because he said, we're told in John chapter 3, verse 29, um, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. 
the bride belongs to the bridegroom. I wonder, is, is John getting that into our minds, getting that into our thoughts as then we approach this story in John chapter 4? You will be familiar, I'm sure, that if you've been here for long enough, you'll have heard us go through the letter of Ephesians a number of months back. And that is it's the language Paul, Paul uses, language um, to speak about the church when he calls uh, when he calls us the bride, church is the bride, and Jesus is the bridegroom. And Paul, in that in that uh, in that analogy, that metaphor, he's he's talking about how a husband will love, how his husband will 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 give up everything, will lay down, will be willing to sacrifice in order to love really well. And then Paul says that is this is this is speaking of the church. This is speaking of Christ's relationship with the church. With him as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. Where the bridegroom will love perfectly. Where the bridegroom will be willing to give everything to demonstrate his love for the bride. And I just wonder, is that is that the scene? Is that the is that is that what has taken place here? Because at this woman's this woman's greatest point of pain, this woman's greatest point of rejection has been in her marriage relationships. But here, Jesus, here is the Messiah that comes and it almost like sets the scene for, for a marriage. Sets the scene in a way that is going to reveal as Jesus, the bridegroom, how he's going to love perfectly, how he's going to be willing to give everything to demonstrate his love for his bride. And the perfect bridegroom, it's almost like he's presented here as the perfect bridegroom who will never give up, who will never give up on his love for her who will never reject her, who will never leave her in a place of isolation, who will never cause her to feel any sense of shame. It feels like that's really good news. It feels like it's really good news for this woman. It's really good news for those who have found themselves in a place of rejection and pain, isolation and shame. But I also want us to think about the about this water that Jesus talks about. Again, this is this is this is not new in terms of what's going on in the in the in the, the narrative, the whole narrative of scripture. Because if we were to go back to Jeremiah chapter two, uh, and again it's actually bride, bridegroom, bride language being used in this word that, that Jeremiah speaks to the people of Jerusalem. Um Jeremiah two uh, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, um, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, um, but it it all it all started to go wrong. And verse thirteen, um, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water um i suppose find myself in that passage again this week and again just feeling probably just a sense of challenge or honestly a sense of challenge as as i try to like cross-reference it i suppose with this story and, and jesus is pointing out to this woman the god the father speaking to jeremiah is is revealing to us that humanity is thirsty for God. Humanity is thirsty for God, and I think it's the same today. 
Humanity is thirsty from God, but we continue to drink from cups that run dry. We continue to drink from cups that hold no water. But as Jeremiah said, um, we've dug our own cisterns. We've, we've tried to, to go our own way, discover our own way to peace, but they are broken cisterns. They're broken cups that cannot hold water. We continue to go back to a well that will never satisfy. And I suppose that was, if I was to leave, to bring some sort of challenge, is the challenge that I've tried to carry this week is where are, what are those cups? What are those cups that I, that I try to fill to find satisfaction that are broken? And maybe it is, a, maybe it is a behavior. Maybe it is some sort of an area of addiction or something that is in your life. Or maybe it's like this woman, drinking from the cup of shame, drinking from the cup of rejection and from isolation. Jesus is saying, you don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to drink from that well anymore. There's an encounter with me that would, that means that you'll never thirst again. So don't keep coming back to this well of shame. Don't keep coming back to this well of rejection that is a broken cup that will never satisfy. And something happened that changed your life. There's this meeting with Jesus. There is this meeting with this bridegroom, with this with this. Perf with perfect love. She has an encounter with perfect love that changes her life and sends her back into the community. And what I what I love, what I try to imagine in this story is I I think I think the biggest thing that caused her to go back into her community with her held head held high was that she no longer felt shame. That she no longer was carrying the weight, the weight of shame, that she was no longer carrying the weight of shame. And, so, and, she, and she went back into their community completely different, completely transformed. And because shame had been broken, because shame had been exposed, it meant then that the whole, that, 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 that every, the community was able to be blessed and be able to be caught by her story, by her testimony. No more shame. I read, I read this week concerning this story, this shamed, rejected, marginalized ethnic enemy became the first person in John's gospel to communicate the good news and bring transformation to an entire city. I love that that's what Jesus did. And I think that's why he had to go through Samaria. He was making a point, this is the woman, this is the, the ethnic enemy the one who's been shamed, rejected, and marginalized, she's going to be the first person to bring the good news and bring transformation to an entire city. I love that Jesus did that. It's just typical. It's just typical of the nature and the character and the person of Jesus. And we sang it, we scribbled it down whenever we were singing that last song. You keep standing at a distance in the shadow of your shame. That's so true. And so for the last few few minutes, I just want to uh, just recognize that where, where we started this whole talking around good news, around the gospel, the very good gospel was right back in Genesis chapter 1. 
And we talked about how uh, at the end of Genesis 1 that God looked around and declared that everything was very good. He was talking about every relationship. Every relationship was declared very good by God. Relationship between God and man. Relationship between ma humanity. Relationship between humanity and relationship between humanity and creation was declared very good by God at the beginning. And we've talked about how that was then destroyed. But how those relationships were all broken. And I suppose what I've, and, I, and I'm not qualified to speak about this. There's probably there's people in this room that are better qualified to speak about this than me. But what was destroyed that I don't think I've thought much about or we've even probably engaged at the beginning was relationship with self. Even that was destroyed. All of those relationships that were declared very good by God at the beginning were destroyed, including relationship with self. And so these, these are the sort of things that I, that I need help with from from other learned people. And Brené Brown is probably one of the, the best people um, around this idea of shame. And she talks about healthy shame, which I never thought was a thing, but healthy shame is, and she talks about uh, like embarrassment and shyness is like a healthy shame. But then there's a toxic shame. And this, this language just like, you know, it, it broke my heart to think that there is actually people that feel like this. And this is how she defines toxic shame. It's experienced as the all-pervasive sense. That I am flawed and defective as a human being. So yes, yeah, so it's, like, it's the thought that that is actually what people feel. Toxic shame is when it's experienced as all-pervasive that I am flawed and defective as a human being. I think I, like that is so, so painful because it moves from an emotion to being something that is core to your identity. That's what happens. That is awful. But that's what shame can do. That we would listen to the lies that are whispered. The lies that were whispered right at the beginning and the lies that are continued to be whispered now about who we are. And shame, that's what shame does. It continues to whisper those horrible lies about who we are. And inevitably, it causes us to retreat. Lies from too many voices. And I don't know where, the, I don't know where your, your, your weakness is when it comes to this. Whether it's media, or whether it's in relationships, or whether it's just in culture, or where you are hearing those lies, but there's lies from too many voices that drown out the voice of the one who says, I love you. Too many voices that drown out the voice of the one that says, I love you, that drown out the noise of the one who sings over you. That is his heart towards you. That is his disposition towards you. Singing over you rejoicing over you, loving you perfectly. And we, the shame whispers so many lies and too many lies drown out that voice, drown out that song. And that has been the problem from the start. Man and woman, the very beginning in Genesis 2 and 3, listened to the lies that tried to convince them that God didn't have their best at heart. Lies from the very beginning that tried to get in that said that he mustn't really love you. He's withholding from you. He doesn't have your best at heart. And those lies got into the mind of 
ma the ma man and woman, Adam and Eve at the very beginning, to saying that he mustn't really love you. And then we've be, we seen the, the, the impact, the impact that there was of choosing not to trust God's way, not to trust his way of peace, not to trust his love. And it led, it led to shame. And, um, and again, that was, that, even though that took place at the beginning, that became, that was a pattern, that became the norm. With the, the children of Israel on their journey, they continued to try to find their own way to peace. They tried to dig, they tried to go after broken cisterns that did not fill, that did not satisfy. And Isaiah, speaking to the people in Isaiah 30, he said, you've tried to carry out plans that are not mine. You've formed an alliance that hasn't been my spirit. You've went down to Egypt to seek their protection. And Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. And so it's just that idea that our attempts to cover our shame, to look for protection, to go our own way, leave us trying to cover our nakedness as took place in Genesis 3 when humanity, when man and woman realized what they had done their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked and it brought shame and their shame caused them to pull back their shame caused them to go hiding but father still came looking Father still came looking. That's what he does. And I think that's what he was doing at the well. Even though she had her shame had caused her to retreat, her shame had caused her to pull back, Jesus came looking. Jesus went out of his way to restore. Jesus went out of his way to sit at this well to help her discover life, to help her discover water that will satisfy. Imagine how good that news was. Because shame leaves us, can leave us standing alone. Shame can leave us separated from one another as it did for this, for this lady. I suppose you just can't help but think about people in your community that you make judgments off that maybe you see them on their own. Maybe you hear about behaviors, maybe you hear the whispers or the gossip. You see them standing on their own and some part of you thinks, well, that's, that's the life that they chose. That's the, that's the, that's the road that they went down without realizing that it is shame, it is the grip of shame, it is the lies that, that shame speaks that leaves them standing alone, that leaves them separated from others. And again, begin to wrap this up, Brené Brown uses this language of shame resilience. And this will be really difficult. This will be a really difficult thing to put into practice. But I think it's really, really key, really, really important. And she tries to define what shame resilience is. She says, if we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and with understanding, shame can't survive. If we can find someone that we can share our, our deepest pains with or points of greatest pain or points of greatest shame or greatest isolation or rejection. If you find someone you can share that with, it exposes shame and shame can't survive. I think that would be incredible because the grip I think that, that shame has in this story and on, on people's lives uh, needs needs people who are going to 
destroy it. These people are going to live in such a way that shame can't can't survive. And so there's other stories that we could go to. There's so many other places that we could go to to, to show that the gospel that has been that has been maybe that we have heard that has been spoken over and over that we are not worthy. I, I want to say that's not true. I know that that has probably been the, the, the narrative of many of our gospel presentations that say that you're not worthy. I want to say that that's not true. The gospel, what the Father has done from the beginning, what Jesus made, what Jesus made clear, what Jesus did, demonstrated beautifully was that you are worthy. Because even what he did, even the story of David, sometimes when I go back into the story of David and just think about it, try to take off all my all 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 the like the rose-colored lenses that I can sometimes look at David with and just think about what he did. Think about what he did. And yet when we get to first chapters like um, I, I, or Psalm 139. And you realize all of the horrible things that David had done and all of his weakness and all of the sin and even all of the pain that he had caused, still God called him wanted. Still God said that he was wanted. Still God called him beloved. Still God called him worthy. And I, and I think, honestly, that is, that is good news. That is very good news. Can you imagine how good that news was for this lady that Jesus encountered? at the well. I think it did something for her that was so beautiful and so profound and transformational. But I think it is a model for all of us. Um, maybe for some of us directly, but I think even for some of us indirectly that it would maybe change how we view people. Maybe it would change how we think about shame and the importance of destroying it, not allowing it to survive. Seeing people like we've we've sat around the table today, and it, Jesus sat with with those who betrayed him, those who had rejected him, and yet he still sat with them. He still ultimately went to the cross, even the, even that in itself just declared, in spite of all that you've done, in spite of all that you thought, you're worth me giving my life for. That's what the cross continues to remind us of. And so that's very good news. Um, so Father, help us. Help us, God. I pray for those in the room. Um, they just carry, maybe just personally right now, carry that feeling of rejection and shame. Jesus, please, by your spirit, and through the help even of one another, that it would be no longer able to survive. Jesus, I thank you that places of our greatest pain that you come alongside. You make a point of coming to the well. Jesus, thank you even what John the Baptist prophesied that the bride belongs to the bridegroom. Oh, thank you, Jesus, is the bridegroom that you'll never let us go. You'll never reject us. You'll never turn us away. You'll never leave us isolated. You'll never leave us in shame. You continue to offer us living water. You continue to offer us water that will never run out, that will never stop satisfying. God, help us to discover that. 
help us to, to drink from that well. God, I pray that those cups that we that we drink from, God, I pray that we would recognize what they are. We'd be so aware of what they are and we would get rid of them. God, we would get rid of those cups that we continually go back to. Spirit, would you help us just to, to continue to, to hear your voice, hear what you're saying, lead us as a family, lead us further and deeper into your heart, into your ways. And that would change our hearts. And, this, and, and as we are inspired by this story, that that, that our transformation would bring about a, a, a wholeness and a transformation with the places where we live. So uh, bless us today. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day.